Well, hey, welcome back to the book of Judges. Uh, as we uh, re-engage this sometimes misunderstood book that's tucked away in the, in the Old Testament, let's, let's just start this morning by acknowledging something that's probably obvious to us as we heard Mark read this text. Scripture is sometimes difficult to understand. It's difficult to understand. Now, that may mean that certain passages that we read are hard to understand. Maybe they're under, hard to understand doctrinally or, or culturally. Or when we read apocalyptic literature, maybe it's difficult to understand the, the symbolism there. Or when we read prophetic literature, it's often sometimes difficult to interpret and grasp all that is being communicated. Or like we read this morning from Judges, sometimes Scripture is hard to understand in the sense of, of just why would God allow something like this to happen? Or what, what is the point of this story in Scripture? We've had several opportunities like that as, as we've journeyed through Judges up to this point, haven't we? And we're only halfway through. Uh, we're going to have several more opportunities to ask that question. What is going on? Why is this here? But we have to believe that, okay, if God has placed this story in his word, then it carries significance and it carries weightiness and and an importance for our lives and our pursuit of him and knowing him. Our responsibility then, regardless of what difficult passage that, that we're reading through or working through, is to be humble, it's to dig in, and it's to work through the text. So we're going to work through the text. So we're going to begin this morning by examining, examining a little bit of the trajectory uh, so far of the nation of Israel and its, its leaders. Now we've had a, a month off from Judges, so we're going to quickly just recap or quickly kind of remind ourselves of, of what we've been seeing in the book of Judges up to this point. And I believe by doing that, it's going to actually help us navigate uh, actually maybe a little bit more what's going on where we currently are and where we're actually seeing the nation of Israel go. So up to this point in Judges, the main theme that the author is is and has been highlighting has been this, this repeated cycle of sin. So each unit that we've been working through would, would typically begin with this phrase. And it says, the, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That would kick off this new cycle of sin that we would see in the book of Judges. This would kick off this pattern and then this response by God. So God would grow angry with Israel because of their idolatry, because they are doing what's evil in his sight, and they would, he would bring judgment to them, and he would do so through the raising up of one of Israel's enemies that was around them. He would raise up an, an enemy nation who would come in and take them captive. Israel then, after years of oppression, would then cry out to God for deliverance, come save us, to which God would hear their cry and would raise up a judge to, to lead them and to fight for them and to deliver them from their captivity. Israel then would repeat many years on, on often occasions of peace, but the judge who was leading them would, would die. Israel would once again fall into sin, and the next unit would start, and they once again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so throughout the first 10 to 11 chapters now, that's what we've seen, this cycle of sin. Yet at the same time, what's been happening in their cycle of sin is, is with each repetition of the cycle, it was, it's, seemingly that, it's seeming that Israel is, is spiraling further and further and further away from God. And so now we're just over the halfway point of Judges. And, and through the remainder of this book, we're, we're going to start to see a little bit of a, a shift in theme. 
No longer are we going to see this repeated cycle of sin where now Israel's crying out for repentance, for deliverance. But I, I believe it's here, even during the leadership of Jephthah, that, that Israel begins to, to not only no longer remember who their God is, but they've, they've spiraled so far, they begin to drift so far away that, that they become so heavily influenced by the, the pagan cultures and the false gods around them that they are no longer resembling anything of what God had initially called them to be. Now, when I say there's a, a, a shifting in, in theme, I'm not saying that God, God no longer is pursuing his people. God's character does not change. He will continue to pursue his people, as we'll even see in the story of Samson that will we'll kick off next week. God's character never changes, but what, what's going to be seen is no longer is Israel's cry out for deliverance, for repentance. Israel's drifting toward idolatry leaves them, as we'll see at the very end of the book of Judges, with this line where it says, everyone was, was doing whatever was right in their own eyes. And so the spiral further and further away from God means that Israel themselves were becoming a God to themselves. And so what we see in Jephthah's story here is a, is a leader that I would categorize as he knew of God. I think there's an aspect of faith that we see in Jephthah. He knew of God, but, but at the same time, he didn't know God as God had revealed himself. And, and his knowledge of God was being shaped more by his surrounding culture than, than God's self-revealed word to his people. And, and this led to these devastating consequences, not only for himself, but for those around him and also for the nation that he was leading. You see, Israel was called by God to live distinctively from the pagan nations that were around them. And, and as they lived under then the, the good reign and rule of God, as God was calling them to himself and say, live underneath my reign, it is good, then as they lived this way, they were to be then a light to the, the surrounding nations, which would draw these pagan nations into the presence of God. That was the, the, the plan for the nation of Israel. Well, as we've been reading through here, uh, they punted on that responsibility. They rejected that, or they failed to, to live in that way. And instead, the, the first couple chapters of Judges, if you remember that far back, God calls them to go into this land and drive out all the nations. Well, chapters 1 and 2 say they didn't. They drove out some, but not all, and they began to live amongst these pagan people, these pagan nations, and they began to, Judges is actually very clear and uses harsh language. It says in chapter 2 that Israel began to whore after these pagan gods. They intermingled with, with these surrounding nations, and before long, they were head deep in this pagan culture rather than living according to God's law and being that light to the nations. See, we now as the church of Christ... We as the people of God, we need to ask something of ourselves as we read through Israel's history, Israel's story. Are we living distinctively as God's people? Or are we more heavily influenced by the culture that surrounds us? Because we're called to be a light in the midst of darkness. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a, a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're called to live under the good reign and rule of God. In Matthew 6.10, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. What's one of the things he says? We pray your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. We live under his will, his reign. We're called to reject the idols of this world and to pursue and love God. 1 John 2.15, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Working through the story in Judges should cause us to ask ourselves then, okay, how can I then truly live distinctively as a child of God when it, when, let's just be honest, it's far easier, it's far more natural to just swim along with the current of culture. And as we look at the life of Jephthah, we're going we're gonna to seek to answer that question. And by looking at his failings, we're going to see where, where we must guard our hearts lest we begin to drift away from God. And it begins with this understanding that God has made himself known. God has made himself known. He has not hidden himself from us. Therefore, in light of that truth, since God has revealed himself to us, and he's revealed himself, I have to add this caveat, through his word, then we must devote our lives to knowing him and to casting aside anything that would hinder us from from following after him. So let's jump in. Let's jump in here. Judges 11. We're actually going to work through uh, chapter 12 as well this morning and wrap up the life of Jephthah. But the story of Jephthah begs us to answer this question as well. Is our culture shaping and influencing our understanding, or even personalize it? Is the culture shaping and influencing my understanding of God? Or is Scripture molding and shaping us, or, or molding and shaping me into the image of Christ? What is pressing us? What is shaping us? What is forming us? Is it our culture, or is it God's Word? And, and if we don't believe that, that our culture is influencing us, or seeking to influence us, we're already in trouble. Speaking of the powerful, but uh, oftentimes unnoticed effects of the culture, author David Foster Wallace, he illustrated it this way by telling this really short story. He said, there are, two, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what's water? You see, just as a, a fish can't escape the, the water around them, neither can we escape our surrounding culture. It's, it's the culture in which we live. However, in that story, the fish in that story, they, they were unaware of the water around them. We cannot make that same mistake. If we're going to live distinctively as God's people, we must be aware of culture's effects on us and around us and be able to then to, to critique the culture through the lens of Scripture. You see, from the tragedy of Jephthah's story, I want us to see wants to see three spirit-led actions that we must take to live uh, distinctively as children of light in the midst of darkness. And those, those three spirit-led actions are going to be that we must know God as he, must, uh, as he has made himself known. It's that we must walk by faith and not by works. And the, and the last spirit-led action is that we must love one another. Now I'm going to get to those points more toward the end this morning. I'm actually going to walk through this, this sermon, this story, a little bit differently than usual. I want, to, I want to review it. I want to explain some of the debate and some of the controversy in it and the different interpretations that some, some people have taken toward it. And at the end, though, what I want to do is, is leave us with, okay, then, but what do we learn from the, the tragedy? And I would define it as that, a tragedy of Jephthah. So if you're, if you're a note-taker, uh, the, the, those points are coming, uh, but let's first understand the story. 
So the first half of chapter 11 sees Israel surrounded. We tackled this back in, in January before we had missions month. So the first half of chapter 11, Jephthah comes into or onto the scene. So Israel is surrounded by uh, their enemy. And so they approach Jephthah. So Israel now goes to Jephthah, a man defined as one who is mighty in battle, but at the same time really one who had wicked character. And they go to him and they say, lead us. Lead us and be ruler over us. You know, Jephthah accepts, and as he goes to this enemy uh, nation, the Ammonites, he, 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 he attempts a, a diplomatic approach with Israel, but to no avail. So the, the Ammonites reject his diplomacy. And so in verse 29, which is the text that was picked up this morning, Jephthah now is preparing for battle. He's gathering an army. He's getting ready to go. And so that's verse 29. says that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he then passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed on to Mizpah and Gilead, of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. So it's tracking his way to gather the army and to get ready to go to war. Now notice before we move on from verse 29, it does say that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Since Israel's appointment of, of Jephthah early on in chapter 11 to lead them, God has actually been silent. We, we actually haven't garnered from uh, chapter 11 where or not God is approving of Jephthah's leadership to lead Israel. So, so we haven't known where is God at in, in, as far as Jephthah being the one to lead Israel into deliverance. Verse 29, though, shows us that God is going to use Jephthah to deliver Israel. It says the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. We've seen that exact phrase used at least two other times throughout the book of Judges. Uh, once it was used of, in chapter 3 of, of Othniel, uh, and it was also used again in chapter 6 of Gideon. In both those cases, the Spirit of the Lord was upon them or clothed them, and, and because of that, God prevailed and delivered Israel from their enemies. And so the idea behind that phrase being on them is to show the victory's already won. Spirit of the Lord is upon you. Um, I have already gone before you. Your enemies are as good as dead, right? So, so this is what we're seeing in chapter 11. So we can deduce from the statement used in chapters 3 and chapters 6 that God's Spirit being upon Jephthah means that victory is certain. All right, he is going to use even this morally corrupt man to bring deliverance to the nation of Israel, which makes what Jephthah is about to do as he goes into battle that more shocking, but what also, I believe, begins to reveal in this story how Jephthah was, was being heavily influenced by the pagan culture around him. So in verse 30, he makes this vow. He makes this vow before God. Most commentators uh, put the word rash in front of the, the word vows, a rash vow. In verse 30 and 31, Jephthah says, If you, God, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Verses 32 and 33 God gives Jephthah the victory. Israel's victorious here. In verse 34, Jephthah goes home in peace. He's the mighty victor, but that peace does not last long. In verse 34, it says, Then Jephthah came to his home. Behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Though it's not recorded, it's obvious then from the, the context that Jephthah then has a conversation with his daughter. His daughter, I'm sure, asked, Well, what was this vow that you made? 
In verses 36 through 38, then, you see, you see his daughter's response to what is coming upon her. She requests two months, two months, grant me two months to go out into the mountains to weep, to mourn. And the text says to mourn for her virginity. I mean, she's weeping that she knows she'll never have the joy of becoming a mother. Verse 39 then picks up things upon her return. It says that at the end of the two months, she returns to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. It became a custom then in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Though it wasn't read this morning, chapter 12 then picks things up with kind of the remainder of Jephthah's reign. And it's nothing but conflict. One of the tribes comes to Jephthah. They're ticked off. This is the tribe of Ephraim. They're mad because they weren't included in, in, in the battle against the Ammonites. And so Jephthah in chapter 12 and verse 2 pushes back and says, Listen, guys, I, I did call you. You didn't respond, so I had to do what I had to do. The scripture doesn't say in chapter 12 who was telling the truth, but Jephthah, rather than seeking, it's interesting, he seeks a diplomatic approach with Israel's enemy. But with, within Israel itself, people that are pushing against him, he does he doesn't attempt any type of diplomacy. He just goes to battle. So I'll wipe the floor with every last one of you. And that's exactly what he does. Chapter 12 ends with this civil war of sorts within Israel. Jephthah killing 42,000 Ephraimites. And all Jephthah led Israel for six years. During that time, he was a busy guy. Delivered a victory over the Ammonites, but also sacrificed his daughter in the process. And killed over 42,000 men from one of Israel's own tribes just because they had a dispute with him. Now, the center of Jephthah's story, I believe, really does revolve around this vow. This vow that was made to God. What was this vow? What was he promising? And when I said there's controversy or debate over this, it's, it's over what this vow is. What was actually being promised by Jephthah to God? So, some believe Jephthah had um, an animal in mind, not, not necessarily a person. However, if that were the case, then, then it's hard to understand why he responded the way that he did as soon as his daughter ran out of the door. If he had an animal in mind, and that was all that was on his mind, it was all sacrificed the first animal that comes out of the house, and he would have greeted his daughter and wait for the first unlucky goat to walk out of the house or whatever it may be. So though, though it's probable, it's probably not likely. Another interpretation, though, is that Jephthah had more of a, of a temple service in mind for his daughter, not necessarily human sacrifice. So meaning, as he saw his daughter, he, he knew she was then going to be dedicated to the temple, and, and thus she would never marry, and maybe that's what she was mourning or what he was mourning. Now again, it's probable, it's probable that that could be potentially the interpretation here of what's going on. However, just my study through it, and you guys study it yourself, but uh, through my study of it, I, I believe that's unlikely. That wasn't what was on Jephthah's mind when he made this vow. If that were the case, then I kind of struggle uh, to understand why his daughter needed two months to, to mourn before the vow was enacted. Um, I, I think it's somewhat hard to explain then verse 40, where w- w- women now, after this, mourn for her once a year for four days, but Jephthah's daughter is no longer mentioned as mourning any longer. I believe then maybe the clearest reason for Jephthah's response to the, the sight of his daughter is, is that the woman's response and, and Jephthah's response to all of this is that he had human sacrifice in mind. I also think Jephthah's vow before battle was similar to what you see 
pagan kings and pagan nations vowing to their pagan gods when they were asking for victory in battle. We'll see an example of that in just a second. See, most likely Jephthah, I believe, was thinking it would have been one of maybe his servants who had come out to greet him, not his only daughter. See, Jephthah's story is a tragedy. It's one we must learn from. Obviously, it's, it's not one we must learn from in the sense of we run the risk in here of offering to God a human sacrifice. I'm not worried about that. But, but what we must learn from is because, like Jephthah, like Israel, they were, they were so heavily influenced by their culture that it was causing them to, to not know who their God was. That's the risk that we face, that we know of God, but we don't really know him. And we become shaped and pressed and molded by what the, what the world around us teaches us or disciples us to believe. And so how do we see culture's influence on Jephthah because of this vow? Well, I believe the answer is actually quite simple. It's because the, the gods of the surrounding pagan nations, even the god of the Ammonites themselves, who Jephthah was going to battle against, they required sacrifice in order to be appeased. And oftentimes the belief was that these gods of these surrounding nations, these pagan nations, demanded human sacrifice. In 2 Kings chapter 3, there's a story that's recorded there of, this, of the king of Israel and the king of Judah and the king of Edom joining together to go into battle against one other nation, the king of Moab. And as they band together and they go against the king of Moab, as this battle is raging, Moab is being defeated. And so the king of Moab sees his forces being destroyed, seeing them being depleted, and it says that he turns to his god, and it was a god by the name of Moloch. And in 2 Kings 3.27, it records this king's actions as he was seeing his kingdom crumble. It says that then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and he offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. See, his practice of human sacrifice was something that had been going on for, for centuries. The region of Moab was really right next to where Jephthah had, had been living. And so you can see the similarities between what Jephthah vowed and what this king of Moab did in battle years later. See, Jephthah believed that in order to, to gain God's approval, he knew of God, but he, he was seeing his God through the lens of his culture. In order to gain God's approval, in order to gain victory, then this God must require extravagant and extreme sacrifice, even human sacrifice if necessary. Because Jephthah had a lot riding on this battle, a lot riding on this victory. And so he needed victory, and so he was willing to do whatever it took in order to gain God's approval. Now here's somewhat of a, of a problem for us as we, as we think about that and as we read through chapter 11 and 12. The, the problem that we might be thinking or asking is, Man, nowhere, though, in the text does it reveal that God's disapproving of this. Like, nowhere. Like, read through it. It does not, he makes his vow, and then the very next few verses is, okay, and then there's victory. So nowhere in the text does it reveal that God disapproves. In fact, again, he's victorious. So, so we could struggle with that and ask, so is God approving of this? Did God give victory because he made this vow? Well, absolutely not. In fact, the argument's going to be that the victory was always, already certain before the vow was made. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Victory was already promised. And yet he still looked internally and still saw his God as one of the gods around him. So absolutely not. But, but we also know that this was not something God would ever approve of because we have God's word. 
God had clearly revealed his law to his people and in his law. It's not that he speaks in ambiguity or general broad terms like, yeah, maybe he's talking about this, maybe he's not. No, he's very clear about this kind of sacrifice and condemns it outright. Deuteronomy 12, 31, the Lord says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Speaking of, of, of pagan nations and pagan gods and the way that, that the world would worship their gods. He says, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. That's pretty clear. In Leviticus chapter 20, God even speaks to specifically the, the, the false god Moloch who demanded human sacrifice, child sacrifice. In Leviticus 20, he gives clear instructions to his people. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Moloch shall, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. This is clear. God disapproves. He gave his law to his people. God had made himself known to them. Unfortunately, Jephthah, the people of Israel, had strayed so far from God that though they knew of him in a general sense, they were looking at him through the lens of culture. They revealed that they really didn't know him. That's why if we are to live distinctively as God's people, as we've walked through the story, there's three spirit-led actions that we must, we must take by God's grace if we are to be light in the midst of darkness. And, and, and so spirit-led action number one is that we need to know God. And again, I'll add this caveat, as he has made himself known. We have no right to determine or to dictate who God is. He tells us who he is. See, their view and their understanding of God was shaped more through the lens of the, the pagan culture than God's self-revealed word that he had given to them. In fact, not only had God made his stance on human sacrifice clearly known, but also in his words to his people, he had addressed even how to handle vows that were made rashly, that were against his will, whether even good or bad. Listen to Leviticus 5, verses 4 through 6. God says, if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is even hidden from him when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these. When he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. See, th th those verses there make this story even more tragic. Like, th this is God's grace <laughs> that we just read in Leviticus. God, God knew his people were weak, were impulsive, were, were prone to say things quickly before we think upon them, before we even take them through God's, God's word. And so God, in his grace in Leviticus, said, here's even when you make this mistake, here's a way for that sin to be atoned. Here's a way for you to be set free from that vow that was rashly made with evil and wrong intent. It was clearly there. Yet because Jephthah's knowledge of God was seen through the lens of pagan culture rather than God's word, he believed that there was nothing he could do, right? And that way he says to his daughter, I cannot take it back. Leviticus 5 just said you can. Through sacrifice, through, through sin atonement. I can't take this back, even though it's clearly against God's good design. I cannot take this back. And it's because he was believing and seeing as God through the lens of the false gods who 
are, are absent of grace, who have no mercy, who demand sacrifice. That's how he was seeing God. See, how is your view and your understanding and knowledge of God being shaped? Is it being shaped by, by the culture or by God's word? If you've ever seen a video of someone who's colorblind, and, and they've made these, these glasses that like, they, they can wear, and, and it opens the world to them, like to see color. And so, so a lot of times when families or friends, they, they gift this person with this thing, and they'll video their reaction. Because their reactions are just always just blown away by the beauty of what they're seeing in color, really, for the first time. And it's, and it's not that people who are colorblind aren't seeing the world in their environment, but they're, they're, they're failing to see the full beauty of it. They're seeing the world through kind of a distorted view that's not really aligning with, with what the true color is all around them. And, and then when they see the world for the first time, they're captivated by it. See, our view of ourselves, our view of others, of our world, of our God, must be shaped through the lens of Scripture. Any other view apart from that is going to give us a distorted view and a view that's not in alignment with the reality of the God who has revealed himself to us, who's designed us to live and for the world to live that would lead us into flourishing and joy. That's why we must be students of God's word. We must know this word. We must be led by it. Moses would say the, the word of God is our very life. So, so if we are to be spirit-led and live distinctively, we've got to know God as he has made himself known. Secondly, if we are to live distinctively as God's people, we must walk by faith, not by works. So Jephthah's vow, when you think through it, was made because he believed that in order to curry God's favor in battle, he needs to work. He needs to do something for it. It wasn't enough that the spirit of God was upon him. He has to do something I need to add to this. I need to earn. I need to do. I need to, need to work. And is, is that not the, the common message that we hear from the world? Is that not the, the, the lie that we believe ourselves? I've got to act. I must work. I must do. I must earn. If there's anything good that is to happen, I must be the one to bring it about. We live in a culture that is preaching really one message. It's the message of human sufficiency. It's the air we breathe. It is the, the water we swim in. So when it comes to then our right standing with God, when we see what, what God has called us to be, so, so many, even within the, the church, so many of us here are going to wrestle with this and struggle with this, this works-based righteousness that we hold on to. That yes, God is gracious and mercy, but I've got to do something. I've got to do something. Right acceptance, right favor with God is Yes, thank you, Jesus, but I know I need to add. I need to do something to this. It's, it's the anti-gospel. It's an anti-gospel. The good news of the gospel is that there is nothing you can do. In fact, the, the good news of the gospel is that we rest in what has been done. And, and this is the hope in which we cling to and hold to. That's the life, the perfect life, the sinless life, the sacrificial death, the glorious resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's what we hold to. That's what we cling to. That's what we proclaim. This is the good news of, of, of what we have in Christ. And so, friend, this morning, if this is not where you are, if this is not where you have turned in uh, repentance and turned in faith to Jesus and Jesus alone, if you're bearing the weight and the burden of thinking you've got to do, you've got to earn, you've got to work in order for God to finally like you, 
to finally love you, to finally accept you, the good news of the gospel through Jesus Christ is to say, don't worry about what you must do. Focus on what has been done. Focus on the life of Christ. Turn in faith to Jesus and find salvation. Church, if we are to be countercultural in this world, we must be a people of faith, fully dependent upon Christ for everything. We must live and know and understand that apart from him, we can do nothing of eternal significance. And when we walk as a people of faith, that's countercultural. The world takes notice of that. When our hope is Christ, then the way in which we suffer, the way in which we view and handle money and sex and power and material possessions and status and titles, all the things that the world elevates to say these are God's, the way in which we even serve others, forgive others, radically love others. When we live with Christ as our hope, we walk as a people of faith, fully depend on him, that there is no greater treasure than than Christ and and the world has nothing that it can offer me apart from him. And that apart from Jesus, there's nothing in this world that can give us the meaning, give us the hope, give us the purpose that our hearts crave. The world takes notice of that. That's counter-cultural. That's a life that's distinctive. We are probably in, in many ways unaware of the, of the water in which we swim, how it's affecting us. And so this is, is probably another moment for us even just to pause for a, a brief second and evaluate, okay, what am I ingesting from the world? What am I ingesting from the world that is affecting my view of my God? Now, I've never been one to put a list together of here's what's approved and here's what's not approved regarding here's what you watch and listen to and read and et cetera, et cetera. Right? There is freedom in Christ and amen to that. And we must all live absolutely according to the, the personal convictions that the Spirit gives us. But, but, but the freedom that we have, and Scripture is clear on this, even the freedom that we have in Jesus does not mean we abuse it. It doesn't mean that we don't live wisely. It doesn't mean that we still don't evaluate what we're filling our minds and our hearts with because those things are going to affect us. A number of years ago, a documentary came out. Uh, The documentary is called Supersize Me. For 30 days, this guy ate nothing but McDonald's. (laughs) McDonald's meals for breakfast, lunch, dinner, 30 days straight. And then as he was recording himself, he was recording the results of what would come in. Now, not surprisingly, uh, at the end of that month, he was far unhealthier. Uh, he had gained a lot of weight. His cholesterol shot up. Even before the end of the 30 days, uh, a doctor came to him and said, you need to stop. You need to stop this. He was sick. He was lethargic. He was depressed. And the weight that he gained in just those 30 days, he said, took him another nine months to work off. You see, what we consume, what we ingest, is going to affect us, whether positively or negatively? Are we as a people walking by faith, dependent upon Christ, dependent upon his word, clinging to him as our greatest treasure and our, and our delight? Or is there nothing different about us that can be seen among those who don't claim Christ? Lastly, if we're to live distinctively as God's people, we must love one another. Love one another. Chapter 12 tells the bitter story of the civil war amongst the people of Israel. Rather than being this united people under the good reign and rule of God, they fought and destroyed one another. And as Judges continues on, it will only get uglier and uglier. Yet God's grace is there. His mercy is seen throughout. But 
looking at the people of Israel, there was, there was really nothing, if you view them at this point in their history, that was really setting them apart from the pagan nations. They treated their God just like, like all the other many false gods around them. They lived in such a way that revealed they had to earn God's acceptance and they were fighting amongst one another. It's the world. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is pretty clear when he's speaking to his disciples about what's going to set them apart from the world. He says, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. That's, that's what's going to set you apart from the rest of the world. Just love one another. God has called the people of Israel together and told them, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God as you live under my reign and rule, my good reign and rule. As you love and serve one another, you're going to be this light to the nations. It's going to draw people. Sadly, Israel drifted away. They're reflecting more of the surrounding culture. We today, the redeemed church of Christ, are called, are called to live under the good reign and rule of God and to love one another. And by doing so, Jesus clearly says, that's how the world's going to know you belong to me. So what is it to love one another? It means to love like Christ. Christ is our example of love. If you want to know what it means to love, you say, let me go to the Gospels. I'm going to learn what love is by looking at how Jesus loved. He loved perfectly. He was sacrificial. His love was humble. His love was costly. Love is others-focused, not self-focused. Love is intentional. It's intentional. We don't fall into love. Isn't that the message of the world, right? You fall into love. Oh, we fell out of love. No, you don't. No, no, you don't. That is a lie. Love is intentional. We choose love. We choose to sacrifice. We choose to focus on them. That's love. It's costly. It's sacrificial. In 1968, the USS Pueblo was captured by the, the North Koreans. It's probably a story that many of us have never heard of. I stumbled across it this week, and when I read through it, I was like, man, this is, this is such a great example of sacrificial love. So they were captured by the, the North Koreans, and 82 crew members were on this, this ship. They were taken captive, and they faced brutal conditions. Now, they were uh, eventually released, but they were held captive for almost a, a year. And upon their release, they began to tell their stories of what they had endured under captivity. One story that they shared stood out among the rest, and it was a story of how the North Koreans would take 13 of the men and these 13 men were chosen to sit in this really awkward, uncomfortable way. I'm not sure what that looked like, but it was just, it was uncomfortable and it was brutal. And, and left them there in that position for hours and hours and hours on end. After several hours would go by, the, the door would swing open and a North Korean guard would, would, would walk in and take the man that was sitting in the first chair nearest the door and would just beat him mercilessly with the butt of his rifle. This torture took place again, they say, on a second day. So it was the same 13 men, again, were taken, placed in that same room, and placed in the exact same chairs. Even the man who sat in that first chair was placed in that first chair again. And after hours, that door would swing open, and that man that's sitting in that first chair was beaten again, mercilessly. Happened again on the third day, again, to the same 13 men and to the same man who was placed in that first chair. Now, knowing this man was not going to be able to survive, on the fourth day, another young sailor, when they went into this room, willingly took the place of sitting in that first chair. And when that door was flung open, the guard automatically just went to that first chair and just beat the new victim without mercy. 
This, this torture took place for weeks. And what these men did, they came together and said, each day, one of us is going to volunteer to sit in that, that seat. Who's going to sacrifice for the other 12? Knowing that as soon as that door would swing open, they would face that beating mercilessly. See, the North Koreans, they say, we're trying to break us down, break them down. But as these survivors tell their story, the guards eventually gave up. And they say because they weren't able to overcome that kind of sacrificial love. We were giving of ourselves for our brothers. Man, what a perfect example that is really of the cross, of the love of Christ. See, Jesus turned the world upside down with a love that had just never been seen before. And so we as the church are to continue to love one another in that radical way. And as we do so, it shakes and rattles the world. As we wrap up this morning, is our culture shaping and influencing your understanding of God? Or is his word molding you, shaping you into the image of Christ? Do you know God as he has made himself known through his word? Are we a people who walk by faith, who are fully dependent upon the finished work of Christ? Do you love one another with an intentional, radical, sacrificial, costly love? You see, our hope in this life and even in this death as we've sung this morning is Christ. It's him that we proclaim. It's in him that we live and move. And it's in him that we have our being. So I pray that we would be a people who live distinctively that would shine as lights in the midst of darkness, a people wholly set on Christ. Let's pray together.